Okay, so I'm going to put on a little music. We can see if anyone has any idea what it might be. Hmm? No, that's a very good guess. It's the right period. Yes. So you probably know this, uh, there is a very popular hymn in England that is called I Vow to Thee My Country that goes to this tune. Uh, this is actually an alternate text called O God Beyond All Praising. Does anybody know who the composer of this tune is? All right, Mark Fenley was close because he guessed Elgar. It's actually Gustav Holst. And there's a reason that we're listening to it, but I'm not going to tell you what it is until later. So uh, we are going to go ahead and get started. And if I can get the slides to cooperate. There we go. Let's begin with the word of prayer. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for this chance to gather again back in our normal room and to re-engage as we get toward the end of this wonderful book. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts and minds to the truth that Lewis is expressing here, truth that is rooted deeply in your word, and that you would use this time to strengthen and equip us to serve you. For we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's say our verse together. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And as we go through these last chapters in the book, this verse becomes more and more and more applicable. So um, for anyone who is new that's on the podcast, uh, we are delighted to have you. We're happy to have you at any level uh, on the beach, snorkeling or scuba diving. Uh, if you want to just listen when you can feel like doing so, that is all great. Or if you want to go deeper, um, please get on our email list. Uh, you can Google St. Philip's Church Charleston, and we'll get you signed up for that. So um, one of the things that is becoming increasingly clear in the latter chapters is the themes from the abolition of man showing up very obviously. 
so be on the lookout for those. Uh, also, this idea where the title came from about the Tower of Babel, that image becomes more and more important as we get toward the end of the book. So I'm going to skip all of these earlier chapters and just review the past few. So chapter 11, Battle Begun, you might remember that the company at St. Anne's had not really done anything. They'd gathered together. Um, one of their members, McPhee, kept saying, why don't we do something? Why don't we do something? Evil's going to triumph. We're not doing anything. And the director kept saying, we need to wait on the Lord and wait on the Lord's timing. So finally, in chapter 11, they begin to take action. They go out and search for Merlin, but they cannot find him. And meanwhile, at the Nice, they're debating torturing Mark, um, not the ethics of torture. They have no problem with the idea of torture, but they're a little bit worried that if they hurt him too much, it might disrupt Jane's visions, and that would be detrimental for them. So Mark realizes in his prison cell uh, how silly and uh, really not well thought out his obsession with getting into the inner ring at the nice really wants. So in chapter 12, um, the search for Merlin keeps going on and two old men are seen. And so the real Merlin arrives on horseback at St. Anne's and a tramp that Merlin stole the clothes off of arrives naked on a stretcher at the headquarters of the Knights. Uh, they learn uh, when Merlin arrives at St. Anne's that he is a Christian and that he has been sent to help them, which is much more than they had ever hoped for. Um, meanwhile, at the nice, Mark is threatened with liquidation, i.e. murder, uh, if he doesn't go deeper into the nice and he learns that the nice is being directed by dark, dark forces, that is, demons. So chapter 13, they pulled down deep heaven on their heads. Merlin, this is actually a comical chapter, because Merlin cannot figure out that Ransom is not the absolute monarch of England. And he thinks he should just be able to utter decrees and hordes of vassals will spring to do whatever he wants. And so uh, Ransom has to disabuse him of this notion. Meanwhile, at the nice, they are propping up this naked tramp and this beautifully ornate room and waiting on him hand and foot and bringing him fine wines and tucking him in with hot water bottles, um, all thinking that he is actually Merlin. So uh, that brings us to chapter 14, and it has an unusual title because the title in the book is in quotation marks. So of course that makes you wonder, where did that come from? And this is actually a quotation from Martin Buber, who is a theologian uh, that you may have heard of. And he's probably most famous for this I, thou, I, it uh, distinction. And basically, this grew out of his work as an existentialist philosopher and theologian. And he was really, um, probably his biggest contribution theologically was that we need to understand the personhood of God. And we need to understand that it's a relationship between I and you, not a relationship between I and it. And that real life comes when we actually meet another person. And so that's where this real life is meeting comes from. 
and there's a lot of meeting that goes on in this chapter. So I'm going to run through these summaries. So Mark is in a cell at Belberry, and Frost uh, comes to him and says, we're going to remove all emotion from you. We are going to rid all humanity, everything personal, and get you to be completely objective. That is impersonal and inhuman. So Mark uh, doesn't agree with this, but he realizes he needs to play along so he doesn't get liquidated. And so he has to endure being put into the objectivity room, which is a room that is architecturally just slightly off. Nothing is quite the way it should be. Arches are sort of lopsided. Um, the proportions are off. There are these weird patterns that aren't quite patterns and is designed to slowly make you insane. He is also exposed to art that is horrible, um, that's designed to offend him so he can then choose to numb his emotions. But it backfires because he's so horrified by this room and by the art that it makes him realize there must be such a thing as the beautiful with a capital B and the true with a capital T and the good. So, and this all seems to be connected to his um, wife, to Jane, and he realizes how much he has just been on the wrong path. So meanwhile, all of this is happening and then suddenly he's taken out of this awful room and he's taken into this room where this old man is lying in the bed with the fire in this elegant room and he's told to babysit him, basically. So um, if the man says anything, Mark is supposed to alert the authorities. Well, the man wakes up while Mark is in there, and it becomes very clear that he's a cockney tramp. And uh, meanwhile, all of the nice people are like fawning on this guy and speaking to him in a Latin, and um, it really is quite amusing. So meanwhile, Jane is helping Mother Dimble uh, get the room ready for Ivy Mags and her husband, who's being released from prison. And then Jane starts thinking about her relationship with Mark and what that will be like when he returns. And then she has this vision that at first she doesn't realize it's a vision. And she's quite terrified of this woman in flame-colored robes that has little fat dwarfs that are following her around who mock Jane and they have a torch that they start waving around it, but instead of catching things on fire, it makes things grow. And so Jane is very disturbed by all of this. And so she makes an appointment to see the director. Um, meanwhile, Mr. Bultitude, the bear, uh, is escaping from St. Anne's, not really intentionally. And there's a great passage in here that I'm skipping about the moral reasoning of an animal, uh, which is kind of amusing as well. But he goes over the wall trying to get some chestnuts, but it's right at the wrong moment because there are some people from the NICE. You might remember the NICE has a zoo of animals that they use for experiments, and they are trying to get a new wolf because apparently they killed the one they had. And so they found somebody that had a wolf, but when they explained they were going to experiment on the wolf, uh, the person balked and wouldn't let them have it. And so they're worried that they're going to be liquidated when they get back because they didn't do what they were supposed to. But then they see this bear and they think, well, we weren't supposed to get a bear, but a bear's better than nothing. So they drugged poor Mr. Bultitude and uh, throw him in the back of their truck and take him to the nice. So meanwhile, Mark keeps talking to uh, the tramp. 
But then when weather and frost come in, they don't talk anymore. And these experts keep coming in that are trying all these different medieval languages uh, on the tramp. And he just has this uh, expression of benign tranquility. Uh, so Frost and Wither are very frustrated. Back at St. Anne's, the director tells Jane that while Merlin is with them, they're in kind of a time warp where the ancient world and the current world are overlapping and it's gonna make some things that are very strange happen. And he tells Jane that because she is not a Christian, some of these things that are part of Merlin's age are going to affect her and she's probably not going to like them very much. And one of the things that uh, happens is that they have this whole discussion about masculinity and femininity because Jane doesn't like the idea of being feminine. She wants to be like a man, able to do everything a man can do um, and rejecting a lot of the feminine like motherhood and things like that. And so one of the things that the director talks about is the way that creation works is not only are men and women male and female, but the concept of the masculine and the feminine run all through every aspect of creation, that it's hardwired into the universe. And then the director explains that they're going to play a trick on the nice. Uh, the nice has played directly into their hands by advertising for a language expert. Um, of course, they want somebody to talk to the tramp, but what the company at St. Anne's decides to do is to have Merlin go and apply for the job. So Merlin will be able to get inside the nice and get an insider view of what's going on. So they are literally opening the door at the nice uh, in such a way that the company of St. Anne's can get in without any problem at all. And so part of that, uh, we're seeing what happens when you wait for the Lord, um, doors open that you would not expect. So meanwhile, Jane is thinking about all these things the director has said, and it seems to her a very strange view of religion, but the more she thinks about it, she realizes no one at St. Anne's ever talks about religion. That word has never come up. They just talk about God. And they picture strong, skillful hands thrusting downward to make someone into a truer version of what God designed them to be. And then Jane has this mystical encounter with Christ, and she finally realizes that God is a person and not an abstract idea. So chapter 15, The Descent of the Gods. Uh, one of the things that Lewis does is he talks about the beauty and majesty of the cosmos. And he has the chief angels of each planet, the Oyeresu, descend on St. Anne's and they all come to this blue room. Remember that we saw in chapter seven, that was so beautiful um, where the director is. And so every time they come, they bring with them their characteristics that are associated with them in mythology, Mercury with the gift of languages, Paralandra, Venus coming with the summer breeze, and Charity, Malachandra, Mars, the ordered rhythm of the universe, Lurga, Saturn, pressure, cold, and sorrow. And then finally, Glondandra, which is Jupiter or Jove, descends. Uh, with the aura of kingship, power, festivities, and music. And these Oyeresu all come basically to lay hands on Merlin and give him all of their gifts so that when he goes into the nice, 
he is going to be able to do amazing things that they will not be able to understand. And uh, McPhee takes Merlin to uh, the nice and Merlin presents himself as responding to this ad for uh, someone familiar with obscure languages and Frost and Weather think he's an old priest. He's got an outfit kind of like Father Brown, um, this big cloak and a floppy black hat. And uh, they think he's a foreign person. And he speaks to the tramp in this strange And the tramp recognizes and responds back in this language because Merlin has uh, put a spell on him. So now he can control Frost and Weather through the tramp and the tramp's demands because they really want to please Merlin. So Merlin makes the tramp uh, say that he demands a tour of Bellberry led by Wither and he wants robes appropriate to his station. And so <laughs> Wither dresses him in the academic robes of a doctor of philosophy, which Lewis is having a little fun with that one, uh, a dressed up tramp. And um, Mark stays with Frost and Frost is still trying to rid Mark of all emotion and make him objective. And he insists that he trample a crucifix on the floor and insult it. And Mark, even though he's not a Christian, he cannot bring himself to do this and eventually says he will not do it. So meanwhile, in the mix of all of this stuff going on, Jules, who you might remember, we haven't heard much about Jules, but Jules is the figurehead director of the Nice. He thinks he actually runs it, but they don't consult him about anything. He just goes off on speaking tours. So he showed up for this dinner that Weather is supposed to be hosting him, but Weather is having to be leading uh, the fake Merlin uh, all around the nice. So meanwhile, Jules is getting really mad that Weather is not there and is insulted. And uh, it is quite amusing to read all of this part. So uh, that gets us to some key passages. And some of these are quite remarkable, uh, going back to thinking about the abolition of man. And this chapter, particularly chapter 14, about objective value, I would like to just take the part about this objectivity room and write an entire book on that, because there is so much in there. And Lewis is just a genius, the way he puts it. So leading up to that, you think then, said Mark, that there would be no sense in asking whether the general tendency of the universe might be in the direction we should call bad? That could be no sense at all, said Frost. The judgment you're trying to make turns out on inspection to be simply an expression of emotion. I'm referring to the famous Romains lecture, when the so-called struggle for existence is seen simply as an actuarial theorem. We have in Waddington's words, a concept as unemotional as a definite integral and the emotion disappears. With it disappears that preposterous idea, listen to this, preposterous idea of an external standard of value which the motion produced. And the actual tendency of events, said Mark, would still be self-justified, and in that sense good, when it was working for the extension of all organic life, as it presently will? Of course, said Frost, if you insist on formulating the problem in those terms. In reality, the question is meaningless the question of good or bad. It presupposes a means and end pattern of thought which descends from Aristotle, who in his turn was merely hypostatizing elements in the experience of an Iron Age agricultural community. I.e., if you think the kind of means that you use to get to an end matter, 
you are a primitive Iron Age caveman. That's pretty bad. Motives are not the causes of action, but it's byproduct. So this is complete abolition of objective value, the abolition of good and evil, no such thing as good or bad, right or wrong. Um, it's all just whatever the next thing is. And that, continued Frost, is why systematic training and objectivity must be given to you. Its purpose is to eliminate from your mind, one by one, the things you have hitherto regarded as grounds for action. It is like killing a nerve. That whole system of instinctive preferences, whether ethical, aesthetic, or logical disguise they wear, is to be simply destroyed. I.e., this kind of objectivity means the absence and nullification of objective value. That anything, that concepts like right and wrong, good or bad, beautiful or ugly, any of those kinds of things, that's just completely thrown out. So now we get to the objectivity room. Frost led him across the room to a narrower little door with a pointed arch in the far wall. Here he paused and said, go in. The room at first sight was an anticlimax. It appeared to be an empty committee room with a long table, eight or nine chairs, some pictures, and oddly enough, a large stepladder in one corner. Here also, there were no windows. It was lit by an electric light which produced, produced before the illusion of daylight, of a cold gray place out of doors. This, combined with the absence of a fireplace, made it seem chilly, though the temperatures were not, in fact, very low. A man of trained sensibility would have seen at once that the room was ill-proportioned, not grotesquely so, but sufficiently to produce dislike. It was too high and too narrow. Mark felt the effect without analyzing the cause, and the effect grew on him as time passed. Sitting staring about him, he next noticed the door and thought at first that he was the victim of some optical illusion. It took him quite a long time to prove to himself that he was not. The point of the arch was not in the center. The whole thing was lopsided. Once again, the error was not gross. The thing was near enough, the thing was near enough to the true to deceive you for a moment and to go on teasing the mind even after the deception had been unmasked. Involuntarily, one kept shifting the head to find positions from which it would look right after all. He turned around and sat with his back to it. One mustn't let it become an obsession. And here we're seeing the impact of architecture that's not aligned with true objective value. And I would love to teach a whole class on this. We're not gonna do that. Uh, but there is wonderful evidence out there that the type of architecture, the type of room or office that you sit in, the type of house that you live in, the architecture of the area and the neighborhood where you live has a profound effect on the way that you think about reality, on the way that your moods run, all of those kinds of things. And so now we're gonna to get to the worst part of this. Then he noticed the spots on the ceiling. They were not mere specks of dirt or discoloration. They were deliberately painted on little round black spots placed at irregular intervals on the pale mustard colored surface. He determined he would not fall into the trap of trying to count them. They would be hard to count. They were so irregularly placed, or weren't they? Now that his eyes were growing used to them and one couldn't help noticing that there were five in that little group on the right, 
It's not counting, though. Their arrangements seemed to hover on the verge of regularity. They suggested some kind of pattern. Their peculiar ugliness consisted in the very fact that they kept on suggesting it and then frustrating this expectation aroused. Suddenly, he realized that this was another trap. He fixed his eyes on the table. There were spots on the table, too, white spots, shiny white spots, not quite round, and arranged apparently to correspond to the spots on the ceiling. Or were they? No, of course not. Uh, now he had it. The pattern, if you could call it a pattern on the table, was an exact reversal of that on the ceiling, but with certain exceptions. He found he was glancing rapidly from one to the other, trying to puzzle it out. For the third time, he checked himself. He got up and began to walk about. He had a look at the pictures. Some of them belonged to a school of art with which he was already familiar. There was a portrait of a young woman who held her mouth wide open to reveal the fact that inside of it was thickly overgrown with hair. It was very skillfully painted in the photographic manner so that you could almost feel that hair. Indeed, you could not avoid feeling it however hard you tried. He had not had such a sensation before. For the moment, he hardly cared if frost and weather killed him. So this is a just brilliant statement about the impact of art that is not aligned with true objective value and the way that it makes you unsettled, um, that it disturbs you, it makes you anxious, causes you to lose hope. So he continues with that. There was, this is another painting. There was a giant mantis playing a fiddle while being eaten by another mantis and a man with corkscrews instead of arms bathing in a flat, sadly colored sea beneath the summer sunset. At first, most of them seemed rather ordinary, though Mark was a little surprised at the predominance of scriptural themes. It was only in the second or third glance that one discovered a certain unaccountable details, something odd about the positions of the figure's feet or the arrangement of their fingers or the grouping. And who was the person standing between Christ and the Lazarus? And why were there so many beetles under the table of the Last Supper? What was that curious trick of lighting that made each picture look like something seen in delirium? When once these questions had been raised, the apparent ordinariness of the pictures became their supreme menace like the ominous surface innocence at the beginning of certain dreams. Every fold of drapery, every piece of architecture had a meaning one could not grasp, but which withered the mind. Compared with these, the other surrealistic pictures were mere foolery. So here you see this whole idea that art is being used for evil to wither the mind, to disconnect people from truth, beauty and goodness to unsettle them, to cause them to lose hope, to be disturbed by what they see. Long ago, Mark had read somewhere of the things of that extreme evil, which seem innocent to the uninitiate, and had wondered what sort of things they might be. Now he felt he knew. He turned his back on the pictures and sat down. He understood the whole business now. Frost was not trying to make him insane, at least not in the sense Mark had hitherto given to the word insanity. To sit in the room was the first step toward what Frost called objectivity, the process whereby all specifically human reactions were killed in a man so that he might become fit for the fastidious society of the macrobes, that is, the demons. Higher degrees in the asceticism of anti-nature would doubtless follow, 
the eating of abominable food, the dabbling in dirt and blood, the ritual performance of calculated obscenities. They were, in a sense, playing quite fair with him, offering him the very same initiation through which they themselves had passed and which had divided them from humanity, distending and dissipating weather into a shapeless ruin while it condensed and sharpened frost into the hard, bright little needle that he now was. But after an hour or so, this long, high coffin of a room began to produce on Mark an effect which his instructor had probably not anticipated. There was no return of the attack which he had suffered last night in the cell, whether because he'd already survived that attack or because the eminence of death had drawn the tooth of his lifelong desire for the esoteric, or because he had, in a fashion, called very urgently for help, the built and painted perversity of this room had the effect of making him aware, as he had never been aware before, of this room's opposite. As the desert first teaches men to love water, or as absence first reveals affection, there rose up against this background of the sour and the crooked, some kind of vision of the sweet and the straight. Something else, something he vaguely called the normal, apparently existed. He had never thought about it before, but there it was, solid, massive, with a shape of its own, almost like something you could touch or eat or fall in love with. It was all mixed up with Jane and fried eggs and soap and sunlight and the rooks calling at Cure Hardy and the thought that somewhere outside, daylight was going on at that moment. He was not thinking in moral terms at all, or else what is much the same thing. He was having his first deeply moral experience. He was choosing a side, the normal. All that, as he called it, was what he chose. If the scientific point of view led away from all that, then be damned to the scientific point of view. The vehemence of his choice almost took his breath away. He had not had such a sensation before. For the moment, he hardly cared if frost and weather killed him. And again, this is this whole idea that when we live in accordance with God's created order, flourishing results from that. But all of this distortion, distortion is a thing that evil can use and it can inhabit and use it to draw us away from what is true and good and beautiful. And day by day, as the process went on, that idea of the straight or the normal, which had occurred to him during his first visit to this room, grew stronger and more solid in his mind until it had become kind of a mountain. He had never before known what an idea meant. He had always thought till now that there were things inside one's own head. But now when his head was continually attacked and often completely filled with the clinging corruption of the training, this idea towered up above him, something which obviously existed quite independently of himself and had hard rock surfaces, which would not give surfaces he could cling to. And this is the idea that objective truth, the objective truth of spiritual reality is a thing that is more real than the things that are tangible in this world, that it is a rock it is a fortress, and it is something that we have to cling to if we're going to be in our right mind. So switching back to St. Anne's and this vision that Jane had, this is the director speaking. You said she was a little like Mother Dimble, so she is, but Mother Dimble was something left out. 
Mother Dimble is friends with all that world as Merlin is friends with the woods and rivers, but he isn't a wood or river himself. She has not rejected it, but she has baptized it. She is a Christian wife, and you, you know, are not. Neither are you a virgin. You have put yourself where you must meet that old woman, and you've rejected all that has happened to her since Maladol, that is Christ, came to earth. So you get her raw, not stronger than Mother Dimple would find her, but untransformed, demoniac, and you don't like it, i.e., your identity without Christ's transforming influence is going to be scarred by sin. But you're troubled, the director said. We call it pride. You're offended by the masculine itself, the loud, eruptive, possessive thing, the gold lion, the bearded bull, which breaks through hedges and scatters the little kingdom of your primness as the dwarf scattered the carefully made bed. The male you could have escaped, for it only exists on the biological level. But the masculine, none of us can escape. What is above and beyond all things is so masculine that we are all feminine in relation to it. This is the whole idea of the bride of Christ, that we are all the bride of Christ. You had better agree with your adversary quickly. You mean I shall have to become a Christian, said Jane? It looks like it, said the director. So he's talking about the immutable reality of the creation, male and female, that God is masculine, that God created them male and female in his image, and that that is hardwired into the universe. So Jane is very frustrated by all this. It ought to have been she who was saying these things to the Christians. Hers ought to have been the vivid, perilous world brought against their gray, formalized one. Hers, the quick, vital movements, and theirs, the stained glass attitudes. That was the antithesis she was used to. This time, in a sudden flash of purple and crimson, she remembered what stained glass was really like. And this is getting at this whole failure to understand the wonder of Christianity, thinking that Christians are dull and boring and gray and there's no creativity or joy, it's just empty, and that the secular world is full of bright conversation and intellectual spirit and all of that. And she realizes that it is exactly backwards of that. The director laughed. The first step is easy. The enemies are at Bellberry are already looking for experts in archaic Western dialects, preferably Celtic. We shall send them an interpreter. Yes, by the splendor of Christ, we will send them one. Upon them he sent he a spirit of frenzy sent to call in haste for their destroyer. They have advertised in the papers for one. And after the first step, well, you know, it will be easy. And finding those who serve devils, one always has this on one side. Their masters hate them as much as they hate us. The moment we disable the human pawns enough to make them useless to hell, their own masters finish the work for us. They break their tools. So again, this idea of waiting on the Lord, opening doors, and the economy of hell that is always feeding on itself. Jane had gone to the garden to think. She accepted what the director had said, yet it seemed to her nonsensical. His comparison between Mark's love and God's love, since apparently there was a God, struck her nascent spirituality as indecent and irreverent. Religion ought to mean a realm in which her haunting female fear of being treated as a thing, an object of barter and desire and possession, would be set permanently at rest, and what she called her true self 
would soar upwards and expand in some freer and purer world. For still she thought that religion was a kind of exhalation or cloud of incense, something steaming up from specially gifted souls toward a receptive heaven. Then quite sharply, it occurred to her that the director never talked about religion, nor did the Dumbles, nor Camilla. They talked about God. They had no picture in their minds of some mist steaming upward, rather of strong, skillful hands thrust down to make and mend, perhaps even to destroy. Supposing one were a thing after all, a thing designed and invented by someone else and valued for qualities quite different from what one had decided to regard as one's true self. Supposing all those people who from the bachelor uncles down to Mark and Mother Dimble had infuriatingly found her sweet and fresh when she wanted them to find her also interesting and important, had all along been simply right and perceived the sort of thing she was. Supposing Maladell on the subject agreed with them and not with her, for one moment she had a ridiculous and scorching vision of a world in which God himself would never understand, never take her with full seriousness. Then at one particular corner of the gooseberry patch, the change came. What awaited her there was serious to the degree of sorrow and beyond. There was no form nor sound. The mold under the bushes, the moss on the path, and the little brick border were not visibly changed, but they were changed. A boundary had been crossed. She had come into a world or into a person or into the presence of a person. Something expectant, patient, inexorable, met her with no veil or protection between. In the closeness of that contact, she perceived at once that the director's words had been entirely misleading. The demand which now pressed upon her was not even by analogy like any other demand. It was the origin of all right demands and contained them. In its light, you could understand them, but from them you could know nothing of it. There was nothing and never had been anything like this. And now there was nothing except this. Yet also everything had been like this, only by being like this had anything existed. And this height and depth and breadth, the little idea of herself, which she had hitherto called me, dropped down and vanished, unfluttering into bottomless distance, like a bird in a space without air. The name me was the name of a being whose existence she had never suspected, a being that did not yet fully exist, but which was demanded. It was a person, not the person she had thought, yet also a thing, a made thing, made to please, made to please another, and in him to please all others, a thing being made at this very moment, without its choice into a shape it had never dreamed of. And the making went on amidst a kind of splendor or sorrow or both, whereof she could not tell whether it was the molding hands or in the kneaded lump. Words take too long to be aware of all this and to know that it had already gone, made one single experience. It was revealed only in its departure. The largest thing that had ever happened to her had apparently found room for itself in a moment of time too short to be called time at all. Her hand closed on nothing but a memory. And as it closed without an instant's pause, the voices of those who have not joy rose howling and chattering from every corner of her being. Take care, draw back, keep your head. Don't commit yourself, they said. 
And then more subtly from another quarter, you have had a religious experience. This is very interesting. Not everyone does. How much better you will now understand the 17th century poets. Or from a third direction more sweetly, go on, try to get it again. It will please the director. But her defenses had been captured and those counterattacks were unsuccessful. And this is a beautiful description. I would encourage you to go back and reread that of the whole mystical process of conversion, of realizing that you in fact are not your own, that you belong to someone else who made you, who has a plan for you and who wants to come and shape you into what you were made to be from the beginning. I could go on and on, but I'm gonna stop. All right, so chapter 15. Uh, some of this is really funny. So we're at the nice in the bedchamber with the tramp. At this reply, the stranger, the tramp, started back, crossed himself several times, and exhibited every sign of terror. He turned and spoke rapidly in Latin to Frost and Wither. Something happened to their faces when he spoke. They looked like dogs who just picked up a scent. Then with a loud exclamation, the stranger caught up his skirts and made a bolt for the door. But the scientists were too quick for him. For a few minutes, all three were wrangling there, frost teeth bared like an animal's, and the loose mask of Weather's face wearing for once a quite unambiguous expression. But before he could make up his mind how to act, the stranger, shaking his head and holding out his hands, had come timidly back to the bedside. It was an odd thing that the tramp who had relaxed during the struggle at the door should suddenly stiffen again and fix his eyes on this frightened old man as if he were awaiting orders. More words in the unknown language followed. The tramp once more pointed at Wither and Frost. The stranger turned and spoke to them in Latin, apparently translating. Wither and Frost looked at one another as if each waited for his fellow to act. What followed was pure lunacy. With infinite caution, wheezing and creaking, down went the whole shaky senility of the deputy director, down onto its knees. And half a second later, with a jerky metallic movement, Frost got down beside him. When he was down, he suddenly looked over his shoulder to where Mark was standing. The flash of pure hatred in his face, but hatred, as it were, crystallized so that it was no longer a passion and had no heat in it, was like touching metal in the Arctic where metal burns. Kneel, he bleated, and instantly turned his head. Mark never could remember afterwards whether he simply forgot to obey this order or whether his real rebellion dated from that moment. So you see here, hatred is just part and parcel of who Frost and Wither are. And Merlin is having fun manipulating the situation, getting Frost and Wither to kneel down um, to pay tribute to the tramp. And right after this, there's another equally wonderful section where they have to um, crawl across the floor on their knees and kiss his hand. So then Frost and Wither go to confer. I am not satisfied. You do not seem to realize the dangers of the situation. We must take into account the possibility that that man is not Merlinus. And if he is not Merlinus, then the priest, that is the real Merlin, knows things he ought not to know. To allow an imposter and a spy to remain at large in the Institute is out of the question. We must find out at once where that priest gets his knowledge from. And where did you get that priest from? So again, suspicion and distrust. These two guys are the ones that are running the program of the enemy and they're constantly fighting with each other and hating each other. And uh, that is good for the other side. 
So back to the objective room. Meanwhile, in the objective room, something like a crisis had developed between Mark and Professor Frost. As soon as they arrived there, Mark saw the table had been draw back, drawn back. On the floor lay a large crucifix, almost life-size, a work of art in the Spanish tradition, ghastly and realistic. We have half an hour to pursue our exercise, said Frost, looking at his watch. Then he instructed Mark to trample on it and insult it in other ways. Now, whereas Jane had abandoned Christianity in early childhood, along with her belief in fairies and Santa Claus, Mark had never believed in it at all. At this moment, therefore, it crossed his mind for the very first time that there might conceivably be something in it. Frost, who was watching him carefully, knew perfectly well that this might be the result of the present experiment. He knew it for the very good reason that his own training by the macrobes had at one point suggested the same odd idea to himself. But he had no choice. Whether he wished it or not, this sort of thing was part of the initiation. But look here, said Mark. What is it, said Frost. Pray be quick. We only have limited time at our disposal. This, said Mark, pointing with an undefined reluctance to the horrible white figure on the cross. This is all surely a pure superstition. Well, well, if so, what is their objective about stamping on the face? Isn't it just as subjective to spit on a thing like this as to worship it? I mean, damn it all, if it's only a bit of wood, why do anything about it? That is superficial. If you had been brought up in a non-Christian society, you would not be asked to do this. Of course it's a superstition, but it is that particular superstition which has pressed on our society for a great many centuries. It can be experimentally shown that it still forms a dominant system in the subconscious of many individuals whose conscious thought appears to be wholly liberated. An explicit action in the reverse direction is therefore a necessary step toward complete objectivity. It is not a question for a priori discussion. We find it in practice that it cannot be dispensed with. Mark himself was surprised at the emotions he was undergoing. He did not regard the image with anything at all like a religious feeling. Most emphatically, it did not belong to that idea of the straight or normal or wholesome, which had for the last few days been his support against what he now knew of the innermost circle at Belberry. The horrible vigor of its realism was indeed in its own way as remote from that idea as anything else in the room. That was one source of his reluctance. To insult even a carved image of such agony seemed an abominable act, but it was not the only source. With the introduction of this Christian symbol, the whole situation had somehow altered. The thing was becoming incalculable. His simple antithesis of the normal and the disease had obviously failed to take something into account. Why was the crucifix there? Why were more than half the poison pictures religious? He had the sense of new parties to the conflict, potential allies and enemies, which he had not suspected before. If I take a step in any direction, he thought, I may step over a precipice. A donkey-like determination to plant hoofs and stay still at all cost arose in his mind. Pray make haste, said Frost. The quiet urgency of his voice and the fact that he'd so often obeyed it before almost conquered him. He was on the verge of obeying and getting the whole silly business over when the defenselessness of the figure deterred him. The feeling was a very illogical one, not because its hands were nailed and helpless, 
but because they were only made of wood and therefore even more helpless, because the thing for all its realism was inanimate and could not in any way hit back, he paused. The unretaliating face of a doll, one of Myrtle's dolls, which he'd pulled to pieces in boyhood, had affected him in the same way and the memory even now was tender to the touch. What are you waiting for, Mr. Studdock, said Frost. Mark was well aware of the rising danger. Obviously, if he disobeyed, his last chance of getting out of Belberry alive might be gone, even of getting out of this room. The smothering sensation once again attacked him. He was himself. He felt as helpless as the wooden Christ. As he thought this, he found himself looking at the crucifix in a new way, neither as a piece of wood nor a monument of superstition, but as a bit of history. Christianity was nonsense, but one did not doubt that the man had lived and had been executed thus by the bellberry of those days. And that, as he suddenly saw, explained why this image, though not itself an image of the straight or normal, was yet in opposition to crooked bellberry. It was a picture of what happened when the straight met the crooked, a picture of the, what the crooked did to the straight, what it would do to him if he remained straight. It was in a more emphatic sense than he had yet understood, a cross. Mark made no reply. He was thinking and thinking hard because he knew that if he stopped even for a moment, mere terror of death would take the decision out of his hands. Christianity was a fable. It would be ridiculous to die for a religion one did not believe. This man himself, on that very cross, had discovered it to be a fable and had died complaining that the God in whom he had trusted had forsaken him, had in fact found the universe a cheat. But this raised a question that Mark had never thought of before. Was that the moment at which to turn against the man? If the universe was a cheat, was that a good reason for joining its side? Supposing the straight was utterly powerless, always and everywhere certain to be mocked, tortured, and finally killed by the crooked, what then? Why not go down with the ship? He began to be frightened by the very fact that his fears seemed to have momentarily vanished. They had been a safeguard. They had prevented him all his life from making mad decisions like that which he was now making as he turned to Frost and said, it's all bloody nonsense and I'm damned if I do any such thing. So there's a lot going on right there. Uh, but part of what's happening is this whole idea of the crooked and the straight. God's design versus the corruption of Satan. This collision of what happens when good meets evil and the whole thing that Jesus teaches about laying down your life, which is absolutely contrary to the wisdom of the world, that it is by laying down your life that eternal life can be taken up. And Mark, because he's not a Christian, he doesn't understand any of this, but there is this visceral understanding because of the fact that God made him, that there's something to that crucifix, that he doesn't have the vocabulary to describe, but he knows that it's important. So now we get to the banquet. It was indeed Wither who entered the room followed by a company whom Jules, this is the figurehead director, had not expected to see. And Wither's face certainly had good reason to look even more chaotic than usual. He had been bustled around his own institute as if he were a kind of footman. He had not even been allowed to have supplies of blood and air turned on for the head when they made him take them into the head's room. And Merlin, if it was Merlin, had ignored it. 
Worst of all, it had gradually become clear to him that this intolerable, intolerable incubus and his interpreter fully intended to be present at the dinner. No one could be more keenly aware than Wither of the absurdity of introducing to Jules a shabby old priest who couldn't speak English in charge of what looked like a somnambulist chimpanzee dressed up as a doctor of philosophy. To tell Jules the real explanation, even if he knew which was the real explanation, was out of the question. For Jules was a simple man to whom the word medieval only meant savage, and in whom the word magic roused memories of the golden bough. It was a minor nuisance that ever since their visit to the objective room, he'd been compelled to have both Frost and Stuttock in attendance. Nor did it mend matters that as they approached Jules and all eyes were fixed upon them, the pseudo Merlin collapsed into a chair, muttering and closed his eyes. And this is Lewis showing how evil and lies, when you spin that web, you yourself will get caught in it. And that all of the things the nice has been trying to orchestrate have come back to haunt them and are um, impeding their program. So some themes that appear in here, uh, abolition of man themes, in case you didn't notice, are all over this chapter. So the abolition of objective value, which leads to the abolition of good and evil, objectivity um, that is in fact the absence or nullification of objective value, uh, the negative impact of architecture that's not aligned with true objective value, the negative impact of art that's not aligned with true objective value, and how it causes loss of hope, non-objective art used for evil to weather the mind, the importance of mimetic living, that is living in accord with God's created order for flourishing, the objective truth of spiritual reality, whether you believe in it or not, flawed identity without Christ transforming influence, the immutable reality of the creation, male and female designed from the beginning of time that way, failure to understand the wonder of Christianity, the world thinking that Christianity is gray and drab and boring, um, the importance of waiting on the Lord and letting him open doors, the power of conversion and how it leads to transformation, hatred as the necessary concomitant of evil, that when you are embroiled in evil, hatred naturally arises as part of that. Suspicion and distrust as concomitants of evil, crooked versus straight, Jesus's crucifixion is the ultimate collision between good and evil, straight and crooked, and the way evil and lies entrap themselves. So quickly, some practices of hope and wisdom. First, develop an appreciation for classical architecture that reflects objective value. Now, I'd love to give you a whole lecture right now, but I'm not going to. But one of the things you may not know is that classical architecture is all about ratios. And those ratios are all derived from things that occur in God's created order. And so there is a reason that people are attracted to buildings like the Parthenon, uh, why people are attracted to Charleston, because most of the historic district of Charleston is built according to these classical architectural principles. And they make you feel good. They promote well-being. Um, and there's great stuff in scripture about this. So many very precise directions that all correspond to these kinds of classical ratios. For example, let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. According to all that I'm going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern for all its furniture, just so 
you shall construct it. And then, for he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. God is an architect, in case you didn't know that. These things serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. And related to that, develop an appreciation for art that reflects objective value. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and morning the sixth day. When art is reflecting the way that God created it, that is representational, objective beauty, then that is something that is in accord with objective value. Um, And then from Hebrews, the place where they served as a sketch and shadow of the heavenly sanctuary, just as Moses was warned by God as he was about to complete the tabernacle, that it is a shadow that the more that our art derives from the beauty of the heavens and the creation, the better off we're going to be. Um, Third, be discerning and wise about what is evil and what is good, uh, from 2 Timothy 4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And this one from Isaiah 5.20 that's so apt. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And fourthly, meditate on the cross and the new creation that results from Jesus' sacrifice for us. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He is before, this is Jesus. Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. That crucifixion on the cross is the most important event that ever happened in human history, and it changes the old era and starts the new era. You've probably heard that expression, the now and the not yet, that we are living in that phase where Jesus has died on the cross, and that has set in motion the things that are leading to the fullness of the kingdom of God. So just before I close in prayer, the reason we were listening to that music, uh, that besides the fact that it was actually probably Lewis's favorite composition, Gustav Holst's The Planets, uh, but that was the Jupiter theme, which was Lewis's favorite part out of that whole composition. And so we have Jupiter descending in this chapter, so it's the most appropriate thing we could listen to. So on that note, let me say a prayer for us. Father, we thank you so much for the wisdom that is packed into these chapters and how it speaks so vividly uh, to what we are experiencing in our culture today. Lord, we pray that you would help us to live as wise, not as unwise, and to make the most of the time, even in the midst of these evil days, to live into the things of your kingdom. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So two things before we go. I would commend to you the handout tonight. It's a little raw compared to some of our handouts, but it's very interesting. It is from a most unusual place, Business Insider. Business Insider, which is a huge uh, sort of investor and business uh, site, had a feature on that hideous strength and how it was the most important work of dystopian fiction that accurately describes what is going on today. And I don't think the author is a Christian, but he is drawn by the truth of what is in this book. And this just came out like six months ago. So it's absolutely fascinating. So on that note, thank you for being here. We will be back next week uh, and we will do the last two chapters and uh, we're going to finish up and have a little time to reflect at the end on that last week in May. So thanks for being here.